When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. It's been an extraordinary few days on the front lines. Over the weekend, Ukraine executed a devastating offensive in the northeastern Kharkiv region, liberating scores of settlements and driving Russian forces back in disarray and confusion, leaving behind equipment, ammunition and their fallen comrades. Military officials in Kyiv estimated the liberated territory to be at least 3,000 square kilometres, including the strategic cities of Izium and Kupiansk. Defeating this, Ukraine's second Kharkiv offensive, is a triumph for Ukraine and a disaster for Russia. Perhaps the biggest single military defeat for its forces since 1943. Joining me to analyse the implications of this offensive are Associate Editor Dominic Nichols, Senior Foreign Correspondent Roland Oliphant, Foreign Correspondent Campbell McDermott, and Assistant Comment Editor Francis Sternley. We are facing a very serious crisis in energy caused by Putin's war in Ukraine. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from The Telegraph's London newsroom and our team is reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Monday, the 12th of September, Day 201. I started by asking Dom for his thoughts on the Ukrainian counteroffensive. Yeah, hi, David. Hi, everybody. So basically, there's been a huge push in the northeast of the country out of the Kharkiv Oblast, the Kharkiv region. Ukrainian forces have pushed at least 80 k's. I mean, the, the border is not, or the, the the edge of where they got up to forward line of own troops, as they would call it. We don't we don't actually know, but they've gone at least 80 k's to the east to the um, the major town of Kupiansk, east of is Kharkiv. That's a major road, and more importantly, a rail hub. Russia are very rail heavy in their logistic support, in particular for their use of artillery, sort of bringing up artillery pieces and artillery ammunition. So rail is very very important to them. Kupiansk is a is a central part of the rail network in that part of Ukraine. So the loss of Kupiansk fundamentally undermined um, and weakened uh, Izium, which is about 50 cases to the south of, of there. And that that is, I mean, it's been called the gateway to the Donbass, but it's a major town um, in the uh, just sort of southeast of, of Kharkiv, so southeast of Kharkiv and, and the sort of northwest of the Donbass region itself. So so Kupiansk had gone, Izium was, was fundamentally weakened and Russia seems to have 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 melted away basically it was it was a route in in disarray there's huge quantities of equipment and ammunition just been left behind um quite a lot of fighting we think so this is this has come at some cost to to ukraine lots of um, russian equipment destroyed but far more left in either in in intact or with um seemingly minimal requirement for work to get it to get it up and running now it looks like Russia tried to get back to hold the line along the Oskil River. That's the sort of r- river running north-south. 
um, from Kupiansk basically just down to just to the east of Izium. However, the, the terrain and the time, the speed of advance of the Ukrainian forces just, just didn't allow it. So they've, they've, Russia has now pulled out completely from the Kharkiv region. There are reports of fighting in Lysychansk. Remember Lysychansk and Severodonetsk, which are a bit further, further east into the Donbass. Remember, they, they were overtaken by Russia some weeks ago, seen as a, a major tactical victory at the time. So fighting reported in the edges of Lysychansk. There's also reports of fighting in the Donetsk International Airport. That's on the northern edge of the Donetsk town, Donetsk city itself. Russia has been com- completely cleared out of Kharkiv in the north to the international border with with russia um this this push has gone like i say about at, at least 80 80 kilometers so how do they do it well we don't really know is, is the short answer we don't really know the the um the natures of equipment they use but it looks like they had very steady build-up of of heavy forces about a a uh, three or four brigades strong so we think about sort of eight to ten thousand troops well well trained well equipped supported by artillery air defense we think also aviation, so helicopters. We're not sure about how much air fast jets were were used. Some images we've seen have suggested that they were they were they were racing ahead in what we call kind of reconnaissance by fire. So we we were talking the other day about these thunder runs that that the, the, the coin sorry the term coined by the U.S. in the Iraq invasion of Iraq 2003, covering yourself in armor and and rushing into the enemy areas not only to to see what's there and to try and have an effect um uh, but but also to, to sort of shake shake things up and see um and see if that if you can just sort of break a stalemate so some of the images we saw were of ukrainian troops in in wheeled vehicles first of all so uh, i mean tracks clearly have been involved but the images we've seen are wheeled and some of them four by fours as in civilian toyota four by fours which is is interesting because they can obviously go very very fast they're not well armored at all but they can go very fast they can utilize the local network so when they run out of fuel they can just fill up the local gas station i don't know if btrs and bmps and and what have you t72s can fill up in in a similar way um but highly mobile probably equipped with anti-tank teams who could get out and or, or dismount and take on any uh any limited opposition that they came up against and uh and then and then push on seemingly once the crust was broken they were able to to race uh, ahead so the maps that we've been seeing of big red bits for russia and big sort of blue bits for ukraine seem not to be entirely i mean as we knew okay not entirely accurate they're not they are not everywhere they're, they're not they just simply they don't have the troops they never had the troops to take the whole country this is one of the great fallacies of what what they were trying to do they hoped Kiev would fall in 72 hours and then it would all be over. They, they never had the troops to, to garrison the entire country. They just simply haven't had the troops there. So when we when we look at these regions, there seem to be small packets of of Russian forces with not a lot in depth. So break through those forces as we as we saw these brigades push through, and then there's open country behind, and that seems to be seems to be what happened. Russia, for their part, this seems to be a failure of of intelligence. They they didn't either didn't see the build up or or didn't prepare for it uh, correctly. They didn't have reserves of, of um, in any great number. Their command and control has been has been weakened. The command and control was either either absent or has been sufficiently degraded uh, in recent um, in recent weeks. And and what how this has come about, I would suggest, is because Russia basically has has broken itself in the Donbass in terms of tanks. 
and infantry fighting vehicles, other heavy, heavy armour and personnel. The recent weeks when we've been saying they are they are moving forward at, at high cost, getting a kilometre a week or, or what have you. Ukraine seems to have been very good at at not becoming decisively engaged. So having a fight, but then getting away, getting out of there before they lost too many um, fighters and equipment. And Russia has been breaking itself, breaking the army in, in the Donbass. Plus, of course, you've had the uh, long-range artillery that's been that's been flowing in, the multiple launch rocket systems, HIMARS and, and what have you, that have been destroying Russian command and control headquarters, their ammunition dumps, and, and, the, and the artillery themselves, Russian artillery themselves. And, and they've also telegraphed, Ukraine telegraphed this Kurzon offensive, which we don't think was a diversion. We do think this is a sort of a, a two-pronged counter-offensive. But by telegraphing Kurzon, it caused Russia to move a significant quantity and quality of its fighting power down to the south. So all those things together from, from the sort of Ukrainian side and, and what, what Russia have done, combined with, as we know, legacy issues of poor leadership in the russian armed forces and they're not they're not very well led they don't believe in the cause they're not well trained equipped not well fed they don't necessarily believe in the cause they don't really understand the cause so all these things together mean that the the russian military was very fragile and it just took a a concerted push which it takes great operational skill and the ukrainians to know when and where to do it because you can can easily break your own force on this but when they decided to go for it they pushed against the russian line and it just it's just fractured and as we know from russian doctrine what how they attack is that they pound the place with artillery from you know dozens of kilometers away and then and then send the tanks in afterwards so they've been completely negated or that that capability is totally negated now because these long-range fires from russia that are 60 70 80 k's behind the lines well, that's where Ukraine is now. So they are on top of these things. They're either destroying them in situ or or taking them because they've been abandoned. But they are not. Russia is not able to use them in any kind of defence or, or or offence now. So we were saying on Friday when when news started coming through about this offensive, what what should Russia do? And we suggested that actually they need to make a bold correction backwards. They can't. They've not been able to put up with these. They've not been able to do limited um, counterattacks themselves, Russia. They need to take a big step back, decide what is important to them, Donbass, Crimea, whatever else it is, and and make a large move that way. That's been forced upon them now, I would suggest, by the Ukrainian action over the last uh, 72 hours. And doctrinally, as in doctrine, the way they, the way they, the way they fight, doctrinally they want to be led by these artillery pieces. And like I say, they are just... Ukraine is too close to them. They are on top of them. They can't use these. So, so quite where Russia draws the line now um, is is a moot point because I'm veering off. I, I will end in a moment. This is the update. But there's a final point here. Yeah, the momentum is all entirely with with Ukraine. It's not up to Russia anymore to decide how far this goes. It's up to Ukraine. It's up to Ukraine to decide how much risk they're willing to take, how exhausted their troops are, what reserves they've got, what they want to do. We'll come back to that later. But the the momentum now is with Ukraine. It is no longer in Russia's gift to decide how far this this thing goes because they 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 have not put up a a reasonable defence anywhere, and I don't think they are capable of doing so. Well, there's lots to talk about. Roland Oliphant, on Friday, you characterised this as potentially the biggest Russian defeat in the field since 1943, spookily in, in roughly the same area. What would you like to add to Dom's analysis? 
Um, I, I would never dare to question Dom's military analysis. I think he would um, sweep the floor with me. Um, although, you know, I do, I do feel listening to him. It's like a, we said the other day, it's like a, you don't need to go to staff college if you listen to Dom. But um, I've been to staff college. You don't, you don't need to. <laughs> I mean, um, I think Francis is going to get into historical analogies later. But um, when I wrote this piece for the six-month anniversary of the war, I was talking about how the end might come and... I thought, you know, maybe many, many years um, and eventually a kind of Soviet withdrawal from Afghanistan kind of thing, a political decision that would become too much. And eventually the might of the West and, and the burden of this immense undertaking would tell and Moscow would have no choice but to withdraw. And that could take years. And then the other comparison I thought of was, you know, the 100 days in 1918, right, where, you know, there's a series of offensives where suddenly the Germans just didn't have an answer. Um, and the Allies had worked out how to fight in a better way, and, um, and and it just kind of built up. And I think it's early days, but I I can see, you know, you, you can see how this could this could really get going if the um, it's about. I think the real impact right here is, is morale. Right, there's that there, there is the you know the physical loss of um, territory and so on and so forth. But the thing that's really struck me over the past. Um, over the weekend, basically, you know, since we did our last podcast, and there were, you know, <laughs> I was dealing with my kid's birthday party, and I, you know, I was looking at my phone, checking Telegram. I mean, the the shock, the sheer shock um, in Moscow and in Russia about this is is really, really considerable. I think now they're beginning to get a grip on it. Now they're getting a message out, and the message is, well, you know, you have setbacks, but um, we're not out of the fight, and this is just the beginning. Um, and, you know, we're going to find another answer to this. Um, so the signaling from Moscow is that this is not over. But, you know, I, I don't know what the morale is like amongst the Russian army and other parts of the front. And as Dom says, there, I, I do have this sense now that, you know, it's up to the Ukrainians to decide. Like the Russians are really going to struggle to, to win back the initiative here. Um, so... I, I, again, I still don't want to be held a hostage to fortune, but there, there is that sense, isn't it, that this, it, it really is a significant turning point. Campbell, can I come to you next? Uh, you've been speaking to Ukrainian soldiers, uh, and specifically Ukrainian intelligence. Uh, what are they telling you about uh, the Russian armed forces retreat? Um, ba- basically, that, that it was a rout, um, which you know, directly uh, contradicts uh, Moscow's claims that it was a uh, planned regrouping. And um, I mean, basically, I think what Dom said was uh, right on the money. And, and the kind of nuance that I would add to that is that um, you know, it's, it's not just Russian troops all the way along um, the front, um, and a lot of the um, manpower is these. Um, Ukrainians from the separatist regions of um, Donetsk and Luhansk. And so I think the the Ukrainians identified that along this part of the Kharkiv front, it was very thinly defended and by these um, the, these guys from Donetsk and Luhansk who, um, you know, I think a lot of them have been sort of, uh, if not press ganged in, then, you know, certainly drafted. And um, I've read some stuff that, you know, they have less ac- access to uh Weapons is not good um, coordination with uh, other Russian units. Um, and, and the other thing that um, Roland said about um, motivation, you, know, I, I, you could really see that with with uh, the, the Ukrainians. And you know, some of the videos coming out, you see them, you know, 
um, clearing trenches um, at close range. You know, they've got helmet cam- cams on. And, and I, I suspect taking very high casualties doing so. I mean, one video I was watching, you know, the uh, the explanation attached to it claimed that, you know, the guy who had cleared the trench with his unit said that, you know, of, of 20 of them, you know, only five of them made it through uninjured. Um, so just the, the motivation to do that uh, versus uh, people who have been stuck in a trench uh, poorly equipped and not fed properly who, you know, when, when the fighting came, a lot of them um, ditched their rifles and their uniforms and just tried to skedaddle home, you know. So the, the, the guys I was speaking to yesterday, you know, they're, they're um intelligence, signals intelligence and reconnaissance units. So they're listening to Russian radio and watching on on the drones. And so they're listening to these panic communications and, you know, they're seeing dudes on bicycles trying to, you know, ride home in uh, and they're in civilian clothes. And, you know, when they get picked up, they say, yeah, we're just civilians. But you know, as the guys I spoke to yesterday pointed out, well, all the civilians are hiding in basements. Um, so, you know, m- military guys of a certain age with a buzz cut and civilian clothes riding back from the front on a bicycle, um, you know, was fairly self-explanatory to the guys I was speaking to. Campbell, we've talked, um, Roland and Dom mentioned morale. You've just left uh, Ukraine. You've headed west. Could you give us a sense of what, I mean, what did you make of that? What did you make of the morale amongst the people you you were speaking to? Uh, People are pumped right now. Um, And I think, you know, particularly after months of... um, not much happening, and then you know earlier in the summer they were really hurting. You know in terms of casualties, um, they were you know just stopping gaps with bodies, and then you know the high Mars came in and they started to sort of turn the tables a little bit. But I think it's you know it's been a long time since there's been um, something to really celebrate in Ukraine. So yeah, the the, the motivation is really high. Uh, people are really excited and. All of the soldiers we spoke to were pumped for for more. You know, the, the whole time I was there, there were talk of a third um, Kharkiv counteroffensive, which was you know about to happen. You know, um, essentially yesterday, and uh, you know I can talk about that now without worrying about losing my accreditation because um, you know <laughs> since we've since seen that you know Russian forces appear to have withdrawn from all of Kharkiv. Um, rendering this plan for a third counter-offensive around their uh, moot. I've just got one more question for you three before we move to Francis Dernley, which is, I mean, Dom, you mentioned this very early on, that the Russians lost the strategically important rail hub of Kupiansk. Uh, what implications does that have for the for the West, for Russian forces in Kherson? Um, I guess that's a question I think I've seen a few times from from listeners. Is we know what's happening in in Kharkiv, this this historic loss for the Russian um, armed forces there. What implications does that have for the Russian defence of their lines around Kherson? I think the loss of Kupiansk has little direct influence on Kherson. Kherson is mainly supplied through Crimea. Um, however, I mean it, it is all knitted together. I, 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 have a chance maybe a bit later to, to say what what might they do next what might ukraine do next and and Herzon is is absolutely front and center in that in that argument but in in answer to your direct question i think very little very little of the supply logistic supply to the Kherson front is coming through the railhead up in the in the northeast 
Thank you, Dom. Francis, you've been listening to all of this. What's your take? Well, um, I'd first like to start by echoing what everybody has said. I think militarily today marks the strongest moment for Ukraine since March, when Russia was forced to abandon the siege of Kyiv. We are, I think, seeing a turning point in the war. And I wanted to emphasise just how unusual what the Ukrainians have managed to achieve is in the annals of military history, to go from being on one's knees to this kind of counteroffensive in the time span that we've seen is extraordinary, as I say. And I think one can make comparisons with the Tet Offensive during the Vietnam War in 1968, uh, the counterattack during the Yom Kippur War in 1973, Battle of Stalingrad, Operation Uranus, 1942-1943. Indeed, I've even seen some comparisons with uh, the Roman recovery post the Battle of Cannae in 216 BC, but I wouldn't necessarily go back quite that far. So those are some examples, but they, those are still um, highly unusual ones. And I think actually the greater significance, I would argue, is actually political At the critical moment, as we're about to enter winter, Zelensky has been able to show that momentum is with him and Ukraine and not with Putin and Russia. And I think the best historical comparison to make with that for the benefit of our American listeners is, again, during the American Civil War. In those early years of the war, the Confederacy had the advantage in many senses, at least militarily, it had more successes. And it was relying on support from Britain and from other countries around the world. And then in 1863, you have the Battle of Gettysburg, you have the victory of Ulysses S. Grant in Vicksburg. And immediately it becomes clear that Britain and other countries are never going to come to the Confederacy's aid. The Union knows this. And at that point, the Confederacy was always doomed to military defeat. And I think what we're seeing now is with the scale of this Ukrainian victory is that the political doubters in Europe now won't have a leg to stand on, that the political support militarily and in terms of Ukrainian aims of the end game with the war will now be very, very strong indeed and renewed by this. And we talked, as I say, so much about what winter might mean with the energy crisis and that there may well be a lack of uh, solidity and support for Ukraine as this winter got worse. But I think that actually uh, that will, what has happened here is will lead to a complete transformation of um, attitudes. And indeed, there's already seen We've already seen some evidence of that. Um, I was looking at a tweet by Minister of Foreign Affairs in Lithuania, and indeed he's been robust on this, but I think he echoes the strength of feeling that we're seeing across Europe in European parliaments, where he says that Ukraine's heroes have exceeded our expectations daily. Ukraine has earned nothing less than our full support in bringing Putin to justice for each and every crime he has committed. There can be no compromises, excuses or exceptions. It is now beyond doubt that Ukraine could have thrown Russia out months ago if they had been provided with the necessary equipment from day one. 
The people of Ukraine have done enough to earn our respect. We've been humbled by their achievements. And then he goes on and calls for what Europe now needs to do in order to further arm the Ukrainians and draw red lines about the consequences of further escalating on Putin's part. And he concludes by saying, no more West playing, no more dithering, no more negotiations with terrorists. Those who doubted Ukraine's strength should be apologising. Ukraine defended us all, even when some didn't believe they could succeed. Now is the time for us to show our deep gratitude. And as I say, I think that will be a uh, argument that will be being made now very strongly across Europe and the wider world. Well, let's go back to what Ukraine does next. Dom, Roland and Campbell, you've all made the point that the, the momentum is with the Ukrainian armed forces. So, uh, Campbell, you mentioned as, as well that the, the, the next offensive in Kharkiv, in the Kharkiv region. So the question is, I, I throw it open to all three of you, really. What, what does Ukraine do next? What do we think they might do? Where should they be looking? Where should we expect the next hammer blow to fall? So it entirely depends, I think, on whether Ukraine has an operational reserve. And what I mean by that is, is let's say, six to 10,000 um, frontline troops who are uncommitted at the present and so are, are largely rested. They are, they've got full stocks of uh, ammunition and, and um, water fuel uh, food fuel lubricants for the vehicles etc etc so an uncommitted reserve what what do they do well let's have a look at have a look at russia so what what should russia do they should be pushing in the south crimea is their arguably their central gravity that that thing without which they cannot continue fighting um they also want to push on to odessa if they which we which we know their stated aim is maximalist if they want to ensure that ukraine is not a an independent sovereign economically viable state they have to take the south coast and odessa and then possibly push north to kiev but but certainly take it take the south in order to stymie the economy so it should be pushing in the south because they're all at sixes and sevens about their 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 aims here um they've said that that well putin said that the, the aim is the liberation his words liberation of the donbass so he's he's pegged it to geography in the east that's that's not that's not correct they, they've got that one wrong um, and they know it, so they should be pushing in the south, which is why they they why they went so so strong to Kazan earlier in the in the war, and that's why Ukraine fought back so hard there. So they so so Ukraine, what can they do if if they continue to push east from where they are now into the Donbass? They they risk um, minimalist gains for 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 more attrition. So they could they could plow on through, or they could attempt to plow on through the Donbass, but they're then going to extend their own logistic lines. And and for what? I mean, this this idea Putin has of liberating the Donbass, or at least taking the Donbass. I mean, they're, they're nowhere near that. They haven't been. They've never been anywhere near that. So they're no, they're no further. They're no closer to that now than they were three days ago. So Ukraine don't have to push east. They don't have to keep trying to take back more of the Donbass to to win that argument. So what what should they do if they if they if this force that is pushed to the east if it does have an uncommitted reserve of let's say you know, up to seven or eight thousand strong if that force turns south so swings right turns south and heads down uh, towards Mariupol uh, and the southern coast then it's not only working on interior lines of coordination i.e. they can be resupplied more quickly and more securely from the line of the Dnipro and, and, and the west of Ukraine they're not exposing their logistic lines too much to to Russian interdiction or Russian military effect there so that so they're safer if they if they swivel to the right let's say they took Mariupol or somehow got to the south coast 
and and then dislocated that force that's come out of Crimea up to Kherson and, and taken that, that southern land corridor. If they were able to do that, it would be a, a massive psychological blow akin to what we've just seen over this weekend. And and if they were then able to sort of separate that force around Kherson um, from its main supply line, as in from the from the east and the limited supply line it's got coming out of coming out of Crimea, then you end up with a with a sort of Stalingrad type thing. Where you, you end up with that force, that, that Russian force in Kherson being harried from the north, you know, pushed from the north and from the from the from the east and the south as well. I mean, and, and it, so it's it's sort of divide. You know, biting off these little these little bits and pieces. Now, I mean, there's a huge chunk of real estate here. Okay, Ukraine is a big country, so if there is this uncommitted reserve, are they able to pivot right? And I've just you know just glibly said, well, you take Mariupol and, and and go along the south coast. I know that. I mean, that's a massive, massive ask. Um, but I just wonder if any any threat, forget Putin's vaulted aims of the Donbass, but any threat to Crimea to cut off the the resupply from the land and to cut off the water supply any threat to Crimea that that will absolutely focus Russian minds so so what should they do Ukraine what will they do Oof, I, I mean I, I think I think the the main threat uh, for Russia would be Crimea so any 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 greater threat to that which might come from the Kurzon front I mean there are talk, there's reports that the Russians are have have pulled back in the Kurzon front, not across the Dnipro River yet, but pulled back to consolidate their positions. So any pressure there um, not only frees up a big chunk of real estate and it takes away the threat to Odessa. I really don't think there is a, a ground threat to Odessa at the moment. hasn't been for months. Um, but really starts putting a, a threat onto, onto Crimea and, and that will focus minds in the Kremlin. Campbell and Roland, would you like to add anything to that? Yeah, I'll have a go. Um... I, I broadly agree with Dom. Um, I mean, the, the rumor on a panicked Russian patriotic war telegram has been for some weeks about, or some days, uh, a, a new concentration of Ukrainian troops around a place called Vuladar, right? And that is, that's right in that corner where the front line kind of um, comes down from Donbass and then turns um, west or west-east, right? So in that corner, right opposite uh, Mariupol, and, and their fear... Um, uh, seems to be, you know, precisely that, right? A strike down to Mariupol or, or, or towards Melitopol, like cutting that line of communication and that vaunted, that, that land corridor to Crimea, right? Which for years and years and years we were saying was something that Russia wanted. And then when they did the big invasion, lo and behold, that's when, what they went for. Um, so that, that's definitely something that's being kind of widely discussed by, you know, everybody, what are they going to do next? Um, I would, I would suspect they'd ca- try to carry on doing what they've done, right? So eschewing um, urban warfare, right? Trying not to get into in, into fights in places like, you know, Donetsk or Luhansk or anything like that, but to, um, you know, go, thunder runs, right? You know, go, going around these, um, these strong points, um, keeping up the momentum as quickly as possible, keeping people off balance, um, more of the same, because it's just been so successful. Um, I, I mean, there is a... There's a time limit on this, right? It, it's autumn, and and we are going to get the the Rasputitsa, and the ground is going to get soggy, and those um, those wonderful Toyota pickup trucks are are going to have trouble, right? Um, and look, it's not a myth. I mean, I often <laughs> before the war, I was kind of getting frustrated with people talking about ah oh, the mud. You know, I read in I read in Anthony Beaver's Stalingrad that you know the mud stopped the Panzers. Um, well, it's true. I got I got stuck in the mud. Um, out on the front lines near Mariupol um, just like a week before the war began. Um, uh, you know, proper four by four, 
awful, hor- horrible, horribly vulnerable kind of kind of situation, you know, because you, you know that the that, that people could drop stuff in drones and stuff. Um, so there is there's a seasonal thing, right? Um, we're in September. I think maneuver warfare is going to have to stop for a few weeks, at least at some point um, in the coming months. That's fascinating. Thanks, Roland. Campbell, you've been listening to all of this and you've just been in Ukraine, as we've said. What do you think about uh, Ukraine's next moves? I can tell you that one of the immediate um, tasks that uh, Ukrainian soldiers have is collecting and uh, inventorying all of the uh, material and vehicles and uh, munitions and equipment they've just acquired. Um, I was messaging with a... uh, a guy in one of these units who was complaining about the tons and tons of stuff they now had to sort through and uh, how many days it would be doing that. Um, obviously, that's not a, uh, a big long-term issue, but uh, notable that they have acquired a significant amount of kit. Um, the the other thing just worth highlighting, I thought, um, as I left Kharkiv yesterday, uh, there were strikes on... Um, power infrastructure in uh, Kharkiv and uh, Dnipro and, and Zaporizhia um, to take out the, uh, the the power grid. So there were the blackouts in those cities as I was uh, leaving yesterday. And I'm not uh, 100% sure on this, but that seems to me to be one of the, the first... Um, attacks on, on, on the electricity, deliberate attacks on the electricity grid. Um, so it'll be, you know, the, I guess, um, you know, Russia felt that it had to do something to uh, retaliate after this humiliating um, defeat. And um, it's interesting that they, they viewed that as a legitimate target. And I don't know whether that speaks to their lack of other targets or wanting to do a, a high-profile attack, but I do wonder whether... Um, you might start to see more of that kind of thing because I, you know, I think despite what some of the coverage has suggested, um, a, a lot of the Russian attacks um, beyond artillery range um, have not been entirely random on um, Ukrainian cities. Um, they've been using these S three hundred missiles, you know, air defenses for ground attack, and uh, so I don't think they're entirely. Uh, accurate, but you know these are guided missiles, and um, a lot of the sites we went to to see where these had landed. You know, often I think there had been a military target nearby; they hadn't always hit it. Um, you know, I think close to the front line, those villages were just getting pounded by artillery, and that was more or less random. But you know, I think a lot of the strikes on um, Ukrainian cities ha- have been targeting military targets. So you know, the fact that they then yesterday you know attacked the uh, civilian power grid, I, I thought was notable and I did wonder whether you know that you might start to see more of that kind of thing. Talking a little bit further about um, the Russian reaction, um, Roland, we've seen lots of sort of excited tweets and reporting over the weekend about sort of talk show guests going off script in, in, in their criticism of, of the Russian war effort. There's been some reports of councillors calling for Putin to resign. Um, are from your perspective, do you think people are getting overexcited, or could there something could something really big be be happening, or could we be seeing the the start of a of a big anti war movement in Russia? I'm skeptical about about a big anti war movement. Yes, I mean we have had these um, uh, these deputations from 
municipal deputies in St. Petersburg and Moscow um, asking Putin to leave. Um, that's not the first time we've seen things like that from, you know, local local council figures in, in those big cities which have big middle class, relatively liberal populations. Um, and they are not the elite. Right? Um, I, I think Vladimir Putin is good at, well, wait, he's good at a few things, um, but he's extremely good at um, elite control um, and uh, kind of performative protest by some um, some local city councillors, I don't think is necessarily the sign of um, discontent. Um, I mean, yeah, that, that, that discussion on NTV the other night, right? Um, was was really interesting. Um, Boris, uh, what's his name? Nadezhdin. Oh, I'm sorry, I can't recall his, his surname. Um, this uh, former deputy, um, who was basically saying, "Look, um, it's about time we faced up to reality. Like whoever told the president that this could be done in three days, um, you know, played us. Um, it's all a disaster, and there's no way we can beat Ukraine doing what we're doing. So we've got two choices. One is." Um, full mobilization. The other is we start peace negotiations to um, end the war. Um, he was pretty emotional. He wasn't the only person in the studio saying this, right? Um, he was backed up by a couple of other people saying, well, how long is this going to go on for? Um, you know, why on earth are we trying to do this? Oh, right, really? What was So we were told, um, you know, at the beginning of the war by all these experts on federal television that, oh, it'll be over in three days. And um, the only threat to the life of a Russian soldier in, in Odessa is being hugged to death because the people there love him so much. Um, and now we've got the same experts on, on federal television saying, uh, we've got to carry on to the end, um, keep going and all of that. Well, why should we believe them? Um, it was a reflection, I think, of the definite shock and panic this is sent through the system, especially amongst people who follow this, right? Um, so politicians who follow it, people who are plugged in, the the war nerds, the the, the military enthusiasts, um, it's definitely a setback. It's a really, really serious setback. And Vladimir Putin is somebody who has never lost a war. Right? Vladimir Putin's taken Russia to war, I think, five times. So he, he comes into office. First thing he does um, is the Second Chechen War, which he won. Brutally, nastily, he won. Um, uh, Georgia 2008, he won. Uh, Crimea and Donbass 2014, he won. Uh, Syria, he won. This time, um, not only has it not gone to plan, this is, there is no covering this up. This is a really, really, really catastrophic defeat. I think it is the worst single battlefield defeat for the Russian armed forces since that third battle of Kharkiv in 1943. But of course, the Soviets went on to win the war. Um, the, the other thing I think of is, uh, you know, the, the Christmas Eve assault on, no, the New Year's Eve assault on Grozny um, at the beginning of the first Chechen war, when you know, the idea was, you know, we, we can take Grozny in two hours with one parachute regiment. Um, they drove into the center of Grozny and it was a massacre. Um, it's a disaster. But does it shake Putin's control? I think not necessarily yet. Um, he, his response has been quite interesting. He's refused to acknowledge it. You know, he went and opened a, ferris, a new Ferris wheel in Moscow. Um, Moscow carried on with its, um, you know, annual City Day celebrations. The fireworks are out. Uh, the Kremlin's playing it down. The Ministry of Defense is talking about regrouping instead of admitting it. Um, the plan is, you know, they, they've reportedly fired 
the general in command of the Western military grouping, which was responsible for this part of the Kharkiv front. But, you know, I don't see them firing Shoigu or, or um, Gerasimov. Um, I think he's, he, he's going to maintain control. He's going to carry on. And I think we should focus on what Cam just said about those strikes on Kharkiv last night. That, that was, I think, the first big strike on uh, the electricity grid, the civilian electricity grid. Um, winter is coming. I, I I have a feeling that that may be an idea in Moscow. Okay, we're not going to win on the battlefield, maybe, but um, we can put European civilians through a lot of pain with this gas war. We can put Ukrainian civilians through a lot of pain. We can make them freeze. We can leave them in the dark in winter, and we'll force them to come to terms. I think that may be a switch in strategy, um, but I don't think he's giving up. And I think so far... So far, I don't think this is going to be the thing that cracks Putin's grip on power. But if this carries on, there are going to be consequences down the line. And I definitely think even if we don't see um, anything dramatic in Moscow in the coming days or weeks directly as a result of this defeat, it is a shock that is going to, you know, the results are going to make themselves known down the line at some point. You don't get past this, this, this setback, this blow to the image of the man who has always won a war. He's always given Russia military victory. And that has just been pierced. I can see Dom looking very reflective and Francis nodding his head. Would either of you like to come in on that? I, I would. I, I completely echo what Roland was saying there. I'm also sceptical of unrest in Russia in the short term. We've obviously seen a flip of of in in terms of the influence of winter. But prior to now, we were worried and concerned that winter would mean that the Ukrainian forces would, if they didn't reach winter in time, launching a successful counteroffensive, then uh, th- this would be, you know be very damaging for their long term prospects. But actually, now winter is changing in the sense that it, it may well be a disadvantage for the Ukrainians uh, because if the momentum is with them and then they're not able to carry on advancing then it will shift in Russia's favour. And indeed, I think Putin will say, well, let's see what happens in in, in winter with the lines frozen. Let's see what happens with the European energy crisis. And so he will want to hang on and will be telling his generals and and other senior figures that, that, you know, momentum can still be returned to us. Uh, At the end of the day, Russia does tend to start wars very badly and has the capacity at least to to rebuild and end them more strongly. Now, I don't think necessarily that's what's happening here, but it's something at least to be sensitive to. But nonetheless, I completely agree with Roland's broader point, which is that in the long term, Putin will not be able to escape this. And his generals and acolytes will be already wondering who they can blame for this humiliation. And an even deeper question, and one no doubt that, that Putin will be sensitive to, is what happens if these defeated, humiliated soldiers return to Russia? If one looks at him, historical comparisons of examples when soldiers have returned defeated, Russian soldiers have returned defeated to their country. It has had a hugely destabilising effect. It had a destabilising effect in 1905 after defeating the Russia-Japanese war. And indeed, it contributed to the um, uh, attempted revolution in 1905. Of course, it had a huge impact in 1917, particularly with the October Revolution, uh, when uh, the provisional government was overthrown. Many of those were disaffected soldiers. Uh, indeed, one could even say that when soldiers have returned to Russia 
after a successful war, it's had a destabilising influence. Indeed, when the soldiers returned after the Napoleonic War in 1814 and 1815, indeed the soldiers have been in Paris, um, many of the officers had seen what was possible for Russia. They'd seen what the Enlightenment could mean for improving living standards. And that officer class then attempted to launch a coup in 1825 with a Decemberist uprising. So Putin will be very sensitive to the fact of what can happen when soldiers who've been abroad, whether successful or unsuccessful, obviously be unsuccessful in this case, the impact that that can have on the domestic sphere. And the, of course, the uncomfortable conclusion of that is that I think it will be in Putin's domestic interest to continue the war for as long as possible for the simple fact that he won't want these soldiers to return home and destabilise things. So it, it, it may seem counterintuitive, but the worse this war goes, it may well be that at least in the short term, the less likely we are to see it end, that this is something that it will be only complete and utter collapse of the Russian forces you know, something that Putin cannot control will be the event that really precipitates the end of the war. Thanks, Francis. Dom, can I ask you a military question just going on from there? Um, Campbell mentioned that um, from his conversations with Ukrainian intelligence, they described the Russian retreat as, as a rout. Can you just give us a sense of what is a rout and how do you stop one? Um, yeah, I mean, thankfully, I've never been, in, never been involved in one. Um, so I think, I think a rout is when you when you don't know how far back you're going. You know, if you're going to withdraw and the plan is go back 20Ks, 50Ks, 100Ks, whatever, to this to this feature um, that'll, that is more easily defended and that allows us to supply our our forces and uh, and and regroup, take stock and, and, uh, and hold the line. That's one thing. If you're just falling back at the whim of the enemy as they, as they fall down upon you, then that is a, a disorganised route. And as we've seen here... The amount of kit they've left behind suggests they just got on whatever the fastest vehicles were, the only serviceable things they were, and, and headed east. Uh, there are reports that some soldiers were changing into civilian clothes and just trying to melt away. I mean, that, that is not good at all. That, that, um, that fracturing of, of a military force is, is, is in... Is, I, I mean, that's fundamental. If you think about what a military force is, war is a human endeavour. We're all with all the strengths and weaknesses that we all bring bring to it. But how do you motivate people to risk their lives for a cause? Um, that that takes a lot. So even the most disciplined, well well equipped militaries take time to 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 reach that point at which they are they are highly effective. Um, and if you suffer from a lack of training, poor equipment, poor food, corruption before you even get to whether or not there's a moral compass in your military force it is exceptionally difficult to get those people to fight and exceptionally difficult to get those people to stop running if they are scared they don't believe in their chain of command they don't believe that the person to their left and right is going to stick up for them and and risk their lives for your for your defense um it's very easy to keep on going now, Lawrence Friedman, who's a professor of war studies at King's College London, he, he put a great blog post out over the weekend um, paraphrasing Hemingway. He said, he's, he's talking about, he, he, the blog post is called Gradually Then Suddenly. I mean, Hemingway wrote about, you know, how do you go bankrupt gradually then then suddenly. But Lawrence Friedman's talking in terms of how a, how a military collapses. Because we've been talking for months about 
this is a hollow army. This Russian army is hollow. It's just built on heavy artillery and a willingness to take their own casualties and they don't care about um, causing civilian civilian death on the other side. So so we've known it's hollow. We've known it's a, it's a, it's a firecracker about to go off. Um, the tension there, like a Christmas cracker, has been on both sides and suddenly it's gone and it's blown up in Putin's face. And so this this army has fractured. It was it, you know, gradually and, and then suddenly. So so what is the, the this is the route we've seen, and quite how far how far they go back we we do not know until somebody can grip it. Now, if I may, we need to be cautious here. There's still a long way to go. Um, Kharkiv, I'm Putin now. Kharkiv doesn't matter. It's irrelevant. I'm interested in the Donbass, Crimea, Odessa, Kiev. Just you know, you're going to you you want to talk about what you want to talk about rail logistics and railheads and where I'm going to move my that's so down my list. You know, he doesn't care. He can easily write this off. He's interested in Donbass and elsewhere. And there's no suggestion that this is a guarantee that Ukraine's going to be able to eject Russia from the from the rest of uh, of Ukraine. We've seen. Uh, so Rune makes a point. Now, who's going to be the fall guy here? We've seen the, the commander of the Western Military District sacked. So that's it. They tied it off. Kharkiv was a military defeat. Sack the commander. Move on. Come back. Come back tomorrow. So this is not going to affect Putin. There's still a, a very long way to go. And a large part of, of how that's going to go is what what's left in the Ukrainian locker, basically, in terms of firstly, military combat power, that's equipment, personnel, training, etc., etc. But what else have they got? The economy, the international support. I mean, all these things... Um, go to make this this military endeavor i've said it before you know armies don't fight wars nations fight wars armies just do the the, the fighting bit um so there's a lot more to this war as we, and as we've seen winter is coming russia is attacking power supplies um so we, we should by no means yes okay it's been there's been a long, long dark long dark weeks here so we should mark this as a as a rare point of light in the darkness but it's by no means a guarantee that, that that ukraine will be able to carry this on that russia is going to crumble further that russia even cares about this defeat and so we should be very cautious about sounding any victory bells if such things exist just yet just one more question to you, Dom, if I may. Um, you mentioned that you've never been in a route, so gave a, a bit more of a sort of professional um, explanation of what it involves. But, uh, Campbell, you mentioned that Ukrainian soldiers are pumped now. The, the morale is sky high. They're willing to take on the whole army, ready to take on the world. Dom, what does it feel like if you are on the advance? I don't think, if I'm, unless I'm very much mistaken about all of our backgrounds, I don't think any of us would have felt that. But from a soldier's perspective, can you give us just a brief sense of what does it feel like if, if, if you're, you're on the advance, the enemy are retreating before you? How does, what, what does that do to, to, to you, you and your unit and your, your army? Well, it, it is very easy to, to give in to the euphoria of the moment and want to overextend yourself, push on a bit too far, run out of fuel, run out of ammunition, run out of people left and right of you. Um, and this is where military judgment comes in. And it's sometimes frustrating when the orders are to go firm there, set up a defensive position, or maybe even move back a few kilometres to a better defensive position when you think, no, I can see, the, I, can, I can take that, I can keep going. Um, yeah, the, you need you need a cool head in these circumstances. It's, we've talked before about mission command, about allowing junior commanders to use their initiative. And that is I think what we've seen over the last weekend was was a great example of that. But you do eventually need someone to to say, right, stop. We, we're going we're going from here. We're about to overextend ourselves and be 
and be caught out. I mean, I I remember once when I was uh, when we were told to do something, and I, I suggested to the senior officers actually that might not be a brilliant idea, and why don't we do it like this? And he turned around and said, "Dom, we're here to uphold democracy, not practice it," which is a you know, fair enough. Um, you know, it does. You do have to eventually just get on with it. Um, and somebody makes a decision and it might not be to the the men and women right at the front or wherever they are it might not seem the best idea there and then but that's what military discipline is all about that's the difference between a military force and a rabble basically you know that that discipline and that that cool head thinking about what's coming next and how to preserve the power for tomorrow and next week and next year Thanks, Tom. Before we start um, with some of my final questions, is there anything really big that you think we haven't touched upon and any of you that you would like to talk about? Only, I think, the options now that are facing Putin. Uh, ultimately, as to Dom's point, I think the options for him now are decreasing. But nonetheless, politicians in European capitals and around the world will be thinking, what if he goes nuclear? Uh, what if he does try and mobilise the entire army? What would that mean? Um, and I think on the latter point, it's often being dangled as this thing that would be a huge threat. But bear in mind, if he were to try and fully mobilise the armed forces, bear in mind this is still meant to be a special operation for all of this, uh, this would take months for it to uh, come into effect properly for it to really have any noticeable effect and with the kind of momentum that Ukraine has now and I think we'll will have even further with the kind of greater military support that the West will now provide um, they may not have that time so I think that's another option one can scratch off so he really is I think becoming in a very difficult situation and I think we should expect as a consequence of that more saber rattling and threats on the nuclear front particularly if Crimea is threatened but as Dom says we're not there yet still got a long way to go. Campbell can I turn to you you've been in Ukraine reporting for a while now you've just left what what are the what were the most moving interesting stories what are the lessons you've left with that you'd want our listeners to know about? We, yeah we, we've been reporting there for six months which means you know a lot of the really um obvious easy stuff is done and what we're really interested in now is the kind of nitty-gritty of like how this is happening what what the future holds and uh, the ukrainians really don't see an interest in them right now giving you good in access to that kind of information and and you can see why you know the fact that this um Kharkiv operation was um nearly a complete surprise is you know, largely down to the fact that they've kept um, reporters away from from front lines and from talking to people about what's going on. Um, so it was a challenging trip, um, and I, I do hope that um, in the near future, you know, when when uh, the next uh, we might be rolling going back in, um, that things open up a bit and um, there might be a bit more access again, so we can kind of get you. More, um, more, more of the kind of colourful stories about what's going on. You know, just get. You know, I think the most interesting thing for me is is speaking to you know the the, the characters who are, are fighting this war. So we we did manage to meet a um, a female combat. We met a, a couple of uh, female combat medic and drone pilots on this trip, and for me that was really interesting to see how Ukrainian society is changing in response to this invasion um so more women in the military it's kind of like the last um uh frontier um for feminists to fight isn't it the uh the uh 
the right or the ability to fight fight on front lines alongside men. And so that's happening now in real time, you know, in the past six months. Dom Nichols, um, President Zelensky's addresses to the nation nightly have been a feature of this conflict. How did he respond to the news of the operation in the northeast? Well, he responded talking about the, the attacks last night, Russian attacks on Ukrainian power infrastructure that have left the, uh, huge swathes of Ukraine without uh, light and uh, and water. I mean, and this is all that Russia can do. Okay, they they can't push back. They they are they are they've suffered this defeat on the battlefield. They've got no response there. So this is all they can do: chuck weapons around at civilian infrastructure. But I thought President Zelensky was very very measured in his response. He didn't. He wasn't um, full of hyperbole, and he didn't overstate the victory. He didn't really talk about it, actually, to be honest. But what he did was directly address this idea of Russia. All they all they're able to offer is death and destruction to the civilian population, and and he said, I've, "I've got the I've got his quotes here." He said, "Do you still think we are one people? Do you still think you can scare us, break us, force us to make concessions? Don't you really get it? Don't you understand who we are, what we stand for, what we're all about? Read my lips. Without gas or without you." without you without light or without you without you without water or without you without you without food or without you without you cold hunger darkness and thirst are not as frightening and deadly for us as your friendship and brotherhood but history will put everything in its place and we will be with gas light water and food and without you francis would you like to add anything to that i would I was very struck and moved by the footage we've seen posted online of soldiers liberating some of these territories, not just villages, towns, but now cities as well. One in particular struck me, which is there were some soldiers who came across a huge billboard that the Russians had pasted uh, the Russian flag onto with some propagandic messages. And they tore this down and underneath were the words of a Ukrainian national poet, which they then proceeded to read aloud. And it was very powerful. And these scenes are being repeated across Ukraine as we speak. And just think about the impact that that will have on the population, on those who have been under Russian control now for many months. This is what they've been hoping for. And so... We can talk about this in the grand strategy, in the military, the political, but ultimately this is a human tragedy and a human story. And we are, to Dom's point, finally, for many people, seeing some light at the end of the tunnel. And that's something that we should mark and celebrate. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk slash audio. And sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. We are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. 
Ukraine the Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Charles Gear. 